Hi, this is Dave Ramsey, author of Speaking of God, We Don't Know Shit. A former minister reflects on God and religion. This book is a rigorous, clear-eyed, and at times irreverent examination of religious practices and beliefs, including belief in God, from former Baptist minister turned iconoclast D.B. Ramsey. And you are listening to the history of religions and their gods, hosted by the skeptical ghost heathen. You are listening to the history of religions and their gods, and I am your host, the skeptical ghost heathen. You're going to need a bag of chips and definitely a yoo for this one. Everybody, welcome back to the show. Today is September 22nd and 2022. If you're still listening to this show and you are hearing my voice, well, we are on season five and now moving into episode number seven. And so if you listened along with the last four episodes, we just basically concluded the Gospel of Mark as a documentary on the war from a Christian perspective. And so I hope you really enjoyed that one. And um, it's definitely worth the revisit from time to time. So what we're going to pick up from now is re-examining the earliest Gospels that we have, the earliest epistles, the earliest mentioning of Jesus and the movement of Christianity, or the Christianities as in the plural. We're going to also take a look at some extra-biblical um, source information that was kind of describing what was happening at the time throughout Judea and throughout Rome, the Roman provinces, obviously. And I think we're going to find it very interesting. And so what we're looking for in this particular episode is what was the purpose? What was the reason? What was Paul responding to that made him kind of reinvent the movement of Peter, James, and John, the Torah-observant version of Christianity? So I hope you'll enjoy this episode, and we'll keep it just around an hour. And if you have any questions at the end, please feel free to DM me anytime and let's talk about it. In this episode, we will examine the earliest versions of Christianity that were in existence prior to Paul's innovation, when he potentially wrote, what were his motives, and what was he responding to that was happening during his day, supposedly 45 to 60 CE. I also want to explore non-Christian literature from Suetonius, who writes about activities that were going on during some of these earliest Jesus movements, and then finally, what was the political and sociological atmosphere like between the Roman Gentiles and the Jews in the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s? <laughs> <laughs> 
So who was this Paul guy anyway? Well, it was a follower of Jesus Christ, or at least a Christ figure who famously converted to Christianity while on the road to Damascus where he had a vision, at least according to Acts, which was a Christian book dated sometime in the mid to late 90s, and after persecuting the very followers of the community that he later joined. However, as we will see, Paul is better described as one of the founders of the religion rather than a convert to it. Scholars attribute seven books of the New Testament to Paul, out of 14 that we have that are attributed in his name in the second century. But the ones that we can count on, 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, Philemon, Philippians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and of course, Romans. And he was an influential teacher and a missionary to much of Asia Minor and present-day Greece. Paul also claimed to have been a Pharisee, as seen in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. But what is a Pharisee? Well, we know that conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees took place in the context of a much broader and a long-standing social and religious conflict that was among the Jews since around 150 BCE, and then made even worse by the Roman conquests of 63 BCE. Now, one conflict was cultural between those who favored the Hellenization, being that of the Sadducees, and those who resisted it, being the Pharisees. Another was juridically religious, between those who emphasized the importance of the temple with its rites and services, and those who emphasized the importance of Mosaic laws, whether written or oral. A specifically religious point of conflict involved the different interpretations of the Torah and how to apply it to current Jewish life, with Sadducees recognizing only the written Torah and rejecting the prophets, the prophets' writings, and the doctrines such as the oral Torah and the resurrection of the dead. But where should we begin our examination for Paul's motives to help us try to understand best? What was he trying to do, and even more importantly, when? Well, unfortunately, we have some conflicting information right there in the legitimate books that were Paul's. Because in 2 Corinthians 11.32, he says, In Damascus, the governor, under King Aretas, had this city guarded in order to arrest me. Now, so here's the problem. Because we have two kings by the name Aretas. Aretas III, who reigned from 87 to 62 BCE, and Aretas IV, who reigned from 9 BCE to 40 CE. King Aretas IV never ruled over Damascus. Only the third did. So unfortunately, we get nothing else to pinpoint when he might have been writing. But most scholars agree, 45 to 60 CE. And definitely before Vespasian laid siege on Jerusalem and leveled its temple in 70 CE. And does not seem to be aware that Vespasian and his armies are killing Jews by the thousands by the time we get to 66. Paul more than likely died well before the war. Now in terms of dating and understanding Paul, I think that a good place to begin has got to be the corrupted temple and the cult leaders that have been operating it for centuries. 
So if Paul really was born a Pharisee like his fathers before him, you could understand his frustrations with the Holy Temple. But this corruption of the Temple and the Jews of Judea goes back probably as far as 400 BCE and then reinforced 330 BCE when Alexander the Great Hellenized all of Judea and then especially after 200 BCE when Antiochus defiled the temple and installed high priests to serve him, his personal interest, and spread Hellenism throughout all of Judea. The holy temple was not necessarily God's house. Through the entire Hasmonean dynasty, from 140 BCE on, by 63 BCE, the Roman general Pompey conquered Jerusalem and all of its surrounding territories. The Romans eventually overthrew the ruling Hasmonean dynasty of Judea, and the Roman Senate declared Herod the Great as king of the Jews, right around 40 BCE, only to act as their puppet and tax collector, working at the bidding of the Roman emperor. This was the beginning of what is called the Herodian period. The Romans were now the supreme governing power over all of Judea proper, Samaria, Edomia, in 6 CE. Jewish and Roman tensions resulted in several Jewish-Roman wars, leading all the way up to the fall of the temple in 70. So you have to imagine, for Jews living in Rome or Judea, their religion has been broken for hundreds of years. Their holy temple, literally God's house, has been the center of corruption, murder, conspiracy, and bribery. The position of high priest literally up for sale. The position of high priest has been bought and sold for reasons of wealth, power, and control all at the bidding of a foreign master. The idea of salvation for most Jews was problematic, and many Jews actually thought that God had simply forgotten about them, or was maybe even angry with them because of the sinning Jewish elite who wasn't enforcing the true word of the Torah. In a sense, some Jews were just simply lost and theologically destroyed inside. Their homeland was constantly under attack and occupied by not-so-friendly forces who forced the Jews to pay taxes to the Roman emperor, not to mention a property tax as well, or lose your land to the foreign oppressor. But most scholars do believe that a Jesus movement did in fact begin in Judea in the 30s with several small fringe groups. Well, what did this movement look like? Well, I think it's pretty clear. It looked very much like what the Jews wanted. A Christ figure, a leader, who would enforce the Torah, require circumcision to secure God's covenant and his promise, the dietary requirements, and partake in the Jewish festival. A Jewish leader with Jewish blood from Israel, who would take the throne and unify Judea and Samaria, and to one nation under one God, their God, Yahweh, the God of the Jews, the chosen people who were promised by that God that all of Israel would be theirs and theirs alone. 
These were the elements that the temple cult has failed to provide them. No way to salvation. No security. No unification and constantly under attack and oppression and no real place to call home. I am guessing that there is very good reason to believe that there was, in fact, a leader of one of these Jewish messianic factions who was even named Jesus. I actually don't have a problem with it. It's like the seventh most popular Jewish name, and it also means God's Savior. So why not? But I also highly doubt that there was just one. In fact, according to Galatians 1, there were others selling another version of a different gospel entirely to Jews. A problem that Paul makes very clear in his letters. So I want to take a look at Galatians 1 and see what he says. And let's understand. And this is the first letter that I believe he writes, probably close to 48 CE. Greetings. I am Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received from me, let him be accursed. For now I am seeking the approval of a man or of a God. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that I was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was it taught to me, nor did I hear it through oral tradition. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers before me. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor do I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. 
but I went away to Arabia and then returned again to, to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the brother's Lord, or the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then he went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me and my actions. Okay, so obviously we've got some things we have to unpack here, right? Now let's start at the top. Paul introduces himself as an apostle for Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. However, this is what the Jews were expecting through Scripture anyway, that they had been reading about, which actually inspired the Jesus movements. He then goes on to tell the Galatians that this Jesus will deliver them apart from the present age of evil. The present age of evil. So this is what we need to explore. The present age of evil. What can it be? And when can it be? Is he only talking about the corrupted temple cult and the non-existence of God? Or are there other reasons too? He then goes on to say how astonished he is at how quickly the Jews of Galatia were abandoning God and following a different gospel altogether. And that there were other people who were trying to sell them another version of Christ. He then proclaims that those guys who were preaching about another Jesus, Christ or Messiah, should be accursed. Unfortunately, Paul never really gives us any clues to who or what these guys are. But we can assume that they were recruiting Jews for their churches and their version of Christianity or to fight in a war against their Roman oppressors, or both. They cannot be mutually exclusive. We really don't know, so we have to study the political, sociological, and theological climate. What was the atmosphere like? Either way, this does establish that there were several Jesus movements alive in Judea, as well as in Rome in the 30s before Paul establishes his own version of Christianity. So the way that Paul sells his Jesus is that he didn't learn it from men or was taught it. That he received the good news from the celestial, resurrected Jesus himself in a vision. But when we try to figure out who this Paul guy is, he says this. He reminds them that he was once a radical Jew, a zeal lot like his father's fellow Jews before him, right? Who was persecuting the church of God. He doesn't say churches of Jesus Christ. He just says the church of God. So if I understand Paul correctly, or at least this statement, he also condemned the temple cult and its leaders and realized that there would never be a time that salvation could be achieved. And he wanted to provide 
another option. Plan B, Judaism 2.0. But it does seem that he is referring to the Church of God, same as the Church of Christ, and that he was persecuting those early Christians for one reason or another. So really, the only thing that we know is that Paul is a Roman diaspora Jew that obviously cursed the temple leadership and its unworthy sacrifices, as well as the churches that were developing that were worshiping this Christ figure that Peter and James were having visions of as well. Now, unfortunately, one Peter and all of Paul's letters say nothing about a historical Jesus. And Paul seems to not even say that Peter or Cephas, knew Jesus in a historical, earthly sense as well, prior to being killed. Now again, 1 Peter was more than likely written after Paul's letters, sometime in the mid to late 60s, to encourage persecuted Gentiles to stay the course with Jesus, but says nothing about what we can assume is about an earthly Jesus, being set up by the Jewish elite, only to be crucified by the Romans on a Roman cross. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, he does use Jesus' suffering as an example of endurance. But Peter says he's hanging on a tree, not a cross. But like Paul, this still could just be a vision of Jesus' suffering. Not by the Romans, but by Satan and his minions. Now, I personally don't believe that Paul was from a family of Jewish Hellenizers because of his intense knowledge and love of the Torah, as well as Jewish books outside the scriptures, such as one Enoch. I believe that Paul was a Jew that recognized that there was a problem growing between Jews and Gentiles. His fellow Jews were lost, disappointed that their God had forsaken them, and that there were messianic movements appearing even in Rome. That's when he comes across Cephas, or Peter, and James, the brother of the Lord. Now, there's a couple schools of thought here about the brother of the Lord. One that the original text actually said, brothers of the Lord, implying that all Christians considered themselves as brothers and sisters, and that the plural S was accidentally dropped off during one of the hundred times the text was being edited inscribed over, which is not a far stretch at all, because we see this happening all through Christian literature, all the way into the fourth century, where even some scribes repeated the same line like 30 times over again. There are so many scribal errors that it's difficult to trust what any original letter said. The other option is that Cephas and James were, in fact, following a guy named Jesus or Christ who was preaching a Torah-observant sect of Christianity, who may or may not have died some time previously. Unfortunately, we have no real letters from any of them. Only what Paul says about them in his letters. That's it. And all we know is that Paul spent 15 days with Cephas, sharing their Jesus stories, their, their encounters, in which Paul's is very different. In fact, in Paul's story, everything that happened to Jesus in the past sounds like it may have happened celestially and not on this earth. Paul is completely unaware of any disciples, 
doesn't even know the word. It doesn't exist in his vocabulary. He has no knowledge of Jesus having a family. A mother named Mary or a father named Joseph. No ministry. He knows nothing about teaching in parables because they haven't been invented yet. He doesn't blame or acknowledge the Sanhedrin, the Jews or Pontius Pilate for causing Jesus' death. The only thing that Paul knows is the only way to know Jesus is through an apostle such as himself, and that he had died for the sins of the Jews, rose again and in three days, and sat at the right hand of the Father. Because Scripture said so. Paul is just regurgitating Scripture. Paul makes no reference to when, where, or by whom this happened, only that it happened. Because Scripture said it had to. That's all he knows. Additionally, there were ideas that were in circulation for centuries before Paul writes, before he writes his letters to the people of Galatia and the Romans. The cult of Romulus, the cults of Isis and Osiris, the cults of Dionysus and Bacchus. They were all dying and rising savior cults, or even better, salvation cults. These deities would all have to die and rise again to pay for the sins of the Greeks or the Romans or the Egyptians in order to preserve a lucky spot in the afterlife. There was also a Christian idea in circulation that Jesus died in one of the levels of heaven, because there were seven, where God sent him down a few levels to where Satan and his minions would dwell. He would be in disguise to fool the devil. He had to put on human flesh so that he could be sacrificed, because it's difficult to imagine a celestial God being sacrificed or even feeling pain. Also, Jesus had to wear a disguise, even in the third level of heaven, so that Satan would mistake him for someone else. Because God needed Satan to be fooled and to accidentally kill him, to kill Jesus, so he could return and die for our sins. It is Satan in the lower realms of heaven that kills Jesus where then he has to stay there for a while before ascending back up to be with the Father. So, Paul imagining Jesus' ordeal happening in outer space, it's not that ridiculous. It's not at all unbelievable. Same as Osiris, dying and rising in outer space, only to be later humanized by later storytellers. Now let's take a look at some secular views of the time and try to understand what the view was on the Jews by the Romans. Now Seneca, who lived between 6 BC all the way to 65 AD. He was a teacher of the Emperor Nero, and he reflected a very negative and widespread view of the Jews in his writings. He famously wrote, Yet the customs of this most base people have so prevailed that they are adopted by all the world, and the conquered have given their laws to the conquerors. Cited from Seneca's De Superstitione by Augustine. Now the emperor Caliglia, he declared himself a god in 39 CE and commanded that images of himself were to be erected in every house of worship throughout the entire empire, which would include Judea. The Jews refused and Caligula threatened to destroy the temple. 
But fortunately, he was stopped because he was assassinated. Now, some sources attest that Roman soldiers exposed themselves on the temple grounds and even burned scrolls of the Torah. Whether or not these actually happened, there's little doubt that Roman soldiers mistreated people, such as forcing them to travel or carry burdens, as seen in Matthew 5.41. Then the Roman historian Suetonius, who lived between 69 CE to 122 CE, he mentions early Christians and may have also referred to Jesus Christ in his work, Lives of the Twelve Caesars. One passage in the biography of the emperor Claudius Divus, and it's called Claudius 25, refers to agitations in the Roman Jewish community and the expulsion of Jews from Rome by Claudius during his reign from 41 CE all the way to 54 CE which may have been the expulsion that's also mentioned in the Acts of the Apostles in 18.2. But in this context, the word Cresto is mentioned, and Christian scholars obviously want to see this as a reference to their Jesus, while others see it simply as referring to, as otherwise known, a person living in Rome with the name or title Crestus, or even Christos. Both are pronounced exactly the same in Greek. The word in Greek has a meaning from the obvious one, someone who is anointed, such as a leader or a guide, later to be coined as Messiah by Christians, but it also carries the context of someone who is useful, ethical, righteous, good, just, upright, and even virtuous. But either way, historically, the only people that the emperors were dealing with that were, they were insurrectionists, insurrectionist Jews who were not wanting Romans controlling Judea. The idea that some Jews living in Rome were starting to create problems is a legitimate reason. I believe most Jews in Rome kept their mouths shut, but some did create a nuisance. In addition to that, Christians are also explicitly mentioned in Suetonius' biography of the Emperor Nero in Nero 16, as among those who were punished during Nero's reign. And these punishments are generally dated around 64 CE, the year of the great, supposed, great fire of Rome. And then this passage, Suetonius describes Christianity as excessive religiosity. That's right, excessive religiosity, using the word superstitio, as do his contemporaries, Tacitus, as well as Pliny. Now, here's the problem. Because historians debate whether or not the Roman government or historians could actually distinguish the difference between Christians and other groups of Messianic Jews, and as well as Gentiles, whether they were peaceful or militant. The Christians want to try to use this particular claim as trying to describe that, hey, they were identified out of everyone else as being followers of Christ, when it's just in fact not true at all. Now, we have to talk about the Emperor Nero. He reigned from 54 all the way to 68 CE, before basically Vespasian took over and saved the day, saved the Roman Empire. In Nero 16, Suetonius lists various laws by Nero to maintain public order because of the menacing Christians, including halting chariot races as the drivers were cheating and they're robbing. And the pantomime shows, which are frequently scenes of brawls. Could you imagine getting in a fight at a pantomime show? I could see myself kicking a pantomime's ass. 
But among these, among these punishments were all listed for Christians. And now this is what he states, <clears throat> and I quote, During his reign, many abuses were severely punished and put down, and no fewer new laws were made. A limit was set to expenditures. The public banquets were confined as distribution of food. No alcohol. The sale of any kind of cooked variants, and the taverns were forbidden, with exception to pulse and vegetables, whereas before every sort of dainty was exposed for sale. I don't know what that means. Punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. He put an end to the diversions of the chariot drivers, who from immunity of long-standing claimed the right of ranging at large and amusing themselves by cheating and robbing the people. The, panta, the pantomime actors and their partisans were banished from the city as well. So what do we take from this other than during the 60s, Christians or some Gentile Christians were making trouble in Rome? Either way, it only demonstrates that Christians were in Rome. That does not get us to a living, breathing, farting, shitting, sneezing Jesus from the Gospels at all. So how do we interpret all of this? Well, in Roman usage, the word superstitio refers to an excessive religious devotion within or outside traditional Roman religious practices. To Suetonius, this particular excessive devotion was new and mischievous. Now this may have been the case in Suetonius' time, when he released this in 121 CE. Some scholars think that he was backdating the accusations to the time of Nero to fulfill his own particular narrative. The word translated as mischievous is maleficus. That's right, which can also mean magical. Now, as a noun, the word means what? magician. It may be that Suetonius here is accusing Christians of using what he would call black magic in modern terms, as the pagan philosopher Celsus did. But the passage shows the clear contempt of Suetonius for Christians in the second century, the same contempt expressed by Tacitus, as well as Pliny the Younger in their writings. I think that the contempt of Suetonius is quite clear here, as he reduces Christians of his own time to the lowest ranks of society. Same thing that Josephus did. And his statement echoes the sentiment of Pliny and Tacitus. However, as I argued earlier, there is no reason to believe that anyone other than the rebellious Jewish Christians were being persecuted. But then again, there were several other Christian sects in development that were there indeed as well following a charlatan of some sort, practicing black magic. Just as we saw in the Talmudic Jesus of Nazareth, accused of being a sorcerer under the time of Alexander Janius in 90 BCE, a hundred years before the Gospels would write. So what about the mentioning of Christians under Claudius, the Roman emperor who reigned from 41 to 54 CE? Now, Suetonius reports that his dealings with the Eastern Roman Empire, that would be Greece, Macedonia, with the Lycians, the Rhodians, and, of course, the Trojans. 
Now, in Claudius 25, Suetonius refers to the expulsion of Jews by Claudius, and he states, in quotation, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crustus, he expelled them from Rome. Now, it's probably a pretty legitimate statement, because why would a Christian interpolator refer to him as Crestus and place him in Rome in 49 and call him a troublemaker? So it's probably a genuine statement. However, if the statement is to be taken as true, the meaning of the word instigation means from the get-go, from the beginning. So I could read this as, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the beginning of their leader, Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. So I would only read this interpretation as the beginning of rebellious Jews, who were the problem makers, who were the nuisance in the time in Rome, who were at the beginning of retaliating for what was happening in Judea, and more than likely had a leader even referred to as Christus or Christos, which simply means, as we identified earlier, as a leader. So other than that, we get nothing about Christians, Jesus, miracles, or a crucifixion from anyone outside of the movement. But it gets more interesting than that. Now, to better understand what it was like to be a Judean during the purported times of Jesus, along with the idea that Christians were being persecuted, well, we have to look at the reality. Now, most scholars, they identify the year 6 CE as the starting point of the historical period that actually culminated in the Roman-Jewish war that led to 66 to 70 and the ultimate destruction of the temple. Now, in that year, there were two major events that occurred in Israel, including the establishment of Roman direct rule and the revolt against Rome. Now, the Jewish-Roman historian who lived through the years of the war blames the revolt of 6 CE on a guy by the name of Judas the Galilean and states that his revolt, in parentheses, sowed the seeds. That resulted in two later conflicts. He says this in Antiquities. 18.8, by Josephus, of course. Now, Judas's revolt and other later conflicts occurred as a response to the Roman imperial situation that began since Pompey's conquest of Israel in 63 BCE, which involved the destruction of Jerusalem the first time and the violation of the temple's Holy of Holies, as Josephus describes in Antiquities 14.105. And Pompey's conquest of Palestine subjected the Jews under the payment of tribute to Rome. And the refusal to pay such tribute was regarded as nothing less than an act of treason and rebellion against the emperor himself. After Pompey's reign, any attempt at a revolt would result in repeated destruction of Jewish property and land, increased taxes that would be owed to the emperor, as well as social turmoil. In fact, the Romans treated the Jews horribly, as well as brutally, whatever it took in order to make the Jews submit to the Roman masters. Now, some scholars, they link the route to the pre-war period specifically to Herod the Great, who, as you recall, was the Roman client king, quite literally the puppet king for the Roman Empire. Well, he reigned over Judea from 37 BCE to 4 BCE. Now, as an example, many scholars observe that the pre-war period has its roots in the time of Herod. But similarly, other scholars think that Herod's rule actually helped create that condition 
It actually paved the road that led to the revolt. The reason why the pre-war period is linked to Herod the Great is the fact that his rule was characterized by extreme tyranny and oppression. The poor working class paid dearly for his lavish lifestyle as a king. He also weakened any power that the Jewish Sanhedrin had that had been in place since Salome Alexandria in 76 BCE. He also ruled and controlled all of his subjects, using foreigners who were loyal to him. Additionally, he appointed and removed high priests at will from the temple and killed whoever seemed to get in the way, be a potential threat, including members of his own family. What a sweetheart. And in order to cover his lavish lifestyle, his lavish expenses and extensive building projects that were both within and outside of Palestine, as well as his administration cost, well, Herod had to impose some harsh taxes on the poor Jewish peasantry, the working class heroes of Judea. A situation like this forced many Jews into landlessness, forever to be in debt to the king's government like owing the IRS forever hundreds of thousands of dollars, causing severe poverty and starvation. And trust me, it didn't help when drought and famine occurred also during his reign. But besides the economic hardship that Herod caused to his people, he also favored and promoted Hellenism. The Hellenic culture against the Jewish culture, as well as a thousand years of tradition. He was to hell with the Torah, which is why the Arius Piso conspiracy begins to break down for any Jewish Roman lineage that would be able to write the entire New Testament from Paul to the book of Revelation. This kills that entire argument, so just stop it, right? If Herod the Great is passing down this Torah observant genes into people who would later write the New Testament, it is absurd. It's preposterous. Plus, he was half Jewish and not supporting the Torah. The New Testament's full of illusions that only somebody who understood Jewish scripture could write. Anyway, this kills that entire argument, so just stop it. But anyway, he used foreign advisors who knew Greek culture and ultimately transformed Palestine into basically an extension of Rome in honor of the Caesars, his god. As seen in Jewish Wars 1, 410, as well as Antiquities 16, 136 to 145. He also introduced pagan games and even placed a huge golden eagle, the symbol of the Roman Empire, above the temple gate in Jerusalem. Could you imagine that? You're already a pissed off Jew, and here's this big Roman eagle above my holy temple. All these things not only demonstrated Herod's love of the Hellenic culture, including Zeus and the entire pantheon of Greek gods, it's also disregard of Jewish law and customs. Herod's love of foreign culture, his birth status as a half-Jew, his ruthless and oppressive way of ruling and collaboration with Rome, attracted Jewish opposition against him. But since he ruled with such a heavy iron fist, he tolerated no resistance or rebellion. 
He literally took no shit from any Judean that spoke out against him in any shape or form. He controlled the people with such a tight grip that there was no opportunity to organize, to organize and rebel. He would catch you if you were even creating rumors. That's right, even as much as a rumor of a revolt. He would have dozens of his own people killed, pulled out of their homes and have their heads cut off. This is the life, 40 years leading up to the first century. Not to mention, according to Daniel's 490-year prophecy, the expected anointed one is late. Where in the hell is he? He was, he was supposed to arrive by 48 BCE. And here we are, 37 to 4 BCE. And, jo and no Jewish leader has come to save them confirming that Yahweh, the God of the Jews, has, in fact, completely forgot about them. No one is coming for them in their minds. Because of his oppressive, controlling nature, is why we don't hear much about rebellion or unrest during his rule. The deep and long-suppressed discontent, it erupted shortly after the death of Herod the Great in 4 BCE. But the rebellion would first begin, first in daring acts of defiance of the dying tyrant king, and then in spontaneous popular revolts in every district throughout the kingdom of Judea. In Jerusalem, people started demanding that they get a reduction on their taxes, abolition of duties, the liberation of prisoners who didn't deserve to be locked up, and the election of a new high priest that was Jewish and Torah observant. Also, Archelaus, one of Herod's sons, killed about 3,000 people who were demonstrating, who demanded to know the truth about why he killed two teachers of law who incited people to destroy the golden eagle that was erected over the um, entry gate of the Holy Jerusalem Temple. In another incident, Varus, the Roman legate of Syria, who captured Sephorus, burned the city to the ground and then sold the inhabitants into slavery. And in Jerusalem, he crucified 2,000 rebels on wooden crosses for all to see. When Herod the Great died in 4 BCE, his kingdom was divided up among his three sons, Archelaus, Herod Antipas, and Philip. Archelaus ruled Judea as well as Samaria until 6 CE. When the Romans removed him from power because of his failure to govern properly, gather taxes and such. Then his other sons, Herod Antipas, he was handed down Galilee and Perea and ruled until his death in 39 CE. And his last son, Philip, ruled the area northeast of Galilee. So the removal of Archelaus and the accompanying replacement of a Roman governor, it marked the beginning of the Roman direct rule in Palestine. Now, once the Romans established their direct rule in Judea in 6 CE, a series of revolts began to occur, and the first one was led by Judas the Galilean, who resisted making payments of tribute to Rome, which for Jews, which, that's a sign that Caesar was the Lord in place of Yahweh, the God of the Jews. And Lord knows, if you are a Jew and already worried that God was pissed off at you or just plain forgotten about you, so this was bad. If the Jews started submitting to Caesar as their new god, 
But what would Yahweh do then? The Roman suppression of this revolt resulted into a relatively calm period that existed until the time when Pontius Pilate became the governor of Judea, from 26 to 36 CE, when, when these Jesus stories would begin to appear, along with a dozen other Christian movements. Now keep in mind, just because I say Christian movement, that does not mean anything other than a movement led by a leader. Christ is just Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah, also known as Messiah, an anointed or appointed leader or guide. Decetus expressed his peaceful condition by telling that under Tiberius, all was quiet. In Histories 5.9. Now that's kind of contrary to the gospel accounts, isn't it? But when Pilate was governor of Judea, the situation did begin to change because he brought Caesar's standards into Jerusalem by night, according to Jewish Wars 2, 169. And he plundered sacred money from the temple treasury to pay for the construction of an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem. Well, that's just what Romans do, right? <laughs> They're very engineering. But it's kind of like what Antiochus did to fund his war efforts in 167 BCE. But these actions provoked an uproar among the Jews. So Pilate responded to the Jews' nonviolent protest with Roman brutality, as you can only imagine. And then another series of protests broke out in the early 40s, right after Caligula's attempt to erect his image inside the Jerusalem temple. Just like Zeus, right? And nearly 100 years after Daniel's prophecy was supposed to be filled. In 48 BCE, right? But still, God has not sent anyone to help. Just some small messianic fringe groups starting revolts, protesting and others claiming to have had visions of a celestial Christ, asking for peace and submission. Doesn't that seem odd? By the year 44, the whole of Israel is now a province of Rome. So this isn't going at all to plan according to Jewish scripture. Not at all. This is exactly what was not supposed to happen. Because by now, Jews are supposed to be celebrating their freedom with a unified Israel, ruled by a benevolent Jewish leader. Not these pagan heretics putting golden eagles over the temple gates. However, this period witnessed a few minor protests before a series of incidents would occur between 44 and 66, leading to a deterioration of the Roman-Jewish relations. Now, our Apostle Paul, keep in mind, supposedly active between 45 and 60. While this is going on, just to give you some context for why he might have been so inspired to spread the word of Jesus to both Jews and Gentiles. When Camanus, who was the procurator from 45, I'm sorry, from 48 to 52, several riots took place that would lead to a series of protests. And evidently, while standing in the temple court, a Roman soldier exposed himself, making an obscene gesture to the Jewish crowd, which provoked a violent fight. And then another occasion, a Jewish brigand, which is basically an ambushing Jew, 
attacked and robbed one of Caesar's slaves. Then on another occasion, some Roman soldiers burnt copies of the Holy Torah in the temple grounds, which was the action that finally triggered an actual riot. And then Camanus. Well, he ignored a conflict between the Jews and Samaritans, although Camanus was eventually expelled from office due to his misrule. But brigandage, which is the form of ambushing and robbery, developed in Palestine. Now, this is a situation that subsequent procurators did very little to stop. Josephus compares the spread of brigandage during the time period as a disease in a human body. Now, let's read what he wrote about this during the time so we can clearly see what was happening. And I begin, quote, No sooner were these disorders reduced than the inflammation, as in a sick man's body, broke out again in another quarter. The imposter and brigands, banding together, inciting numbers to help revolt, exhorting them to assert their independence and threatening to kill any Jew who had submitted to Roman domination and forcibly to suppress those who voluntarily accept servitude, distributing themselves in companies throughout the country. They looted the houses of the wealthy, murdered their owners, and then set villages on fire. The effects of the frenzy were thus felt throughout all of Judea, and every day saw this war being fanned into fiercer flames. Jewish Wars 2, 264 to 265. So there's a couple of things to talk about here, right? Aside from the obvious one, no mentioning of Jesus, Paul, Peter, or James, no mentioning of persecution of Christians, just angry Jews that have had enough of the Romans' bullshit over 50 years plus. This most definitely makes the connection that rebel leaders were in fact called Christos, Christus, Christ, as seen in Suetonius' Claudius 25 and Nero 16. More than likely, the name Jesus was just a hopeful Hebrew name that simply meant God's Savior. And Jesus Christ simply translated to God's Savior Messiah. This name may or may not have been assigned by Paul or perhaps by the factions that he adopted when he met with Cephas and James. But unfortunately, we'll never know and we'll never find out. Now, further riots and rebellions, they continued to take place, especially after the expulsion of Camanus, the Roman procurator. Now, when Festus and Albinus were procurators of Judea in 60 to 62 and 62 to 64, well, the atmosphere in Judea, it just deteriorated. Additional conflicts arose among the Jewish high priestly factions because of the struggle to win over the procurator's favor, to get them to like them. The state of terror resulting from the Sicarii's assassinations and killings only exacerbated the situation even worse. Now the Sicarii, the Sicarii was a small group, a small little faction of Jewish assassins. Yes, you can picture them hiding in the night, using a little knife called a sika to stick you in the kidneys or into the heart when you're not looking. Now, in fact, Judas Iscariot, you remember, the disciple who turned Jesus into the Sanhedrin, the Jewish elite, is a myth based upon these Jewish assassins. Iscariot 
was another term used for Sicarii. It was Judas who led Jesus to be slain. There are also goats that are still in existence in Palestine that were referred to as Judas goats, and they would be used to lead cattle to slaughter. Really interesting, right? So anyway, when Florus was governor from 64 to 66, leading up to the beginning of the war, well, he forced the Jewish people into open rebellion. Because during his rule, the Jewish people made repeated appeals and protests for their condition and their treatment. So in 64, at a Passover celebration in Jerusalem, they, they protested before the legate of Syria, accusing Florus of ruining their country. But rather than supporting the people's protest, instead the Jewish authorities sought military aid from the Romans and King Agrippa II in order to silence those people. And consequently, the people became so desperate and even more determined to fight. Now, we're not done yet, because now I want to talk about extra-biblical literature that should talk about the conditions that were going on in the time that would involve Jesus, that would involve Paul, that would involve Peter, all the characters mentioned in the gospel accounts, right? So there were writings that were provided by Nero's ex-council, Cluvius Rufus, who served on the Senate since the 30s. Okay, we're in the times of Jesus, right? And he wrote in great detail about the events during the reign of Nero, beginning in 37, all the way through the reign of Ortho in 69. Now, surely, he would have written something about the burning of Rome and the execution of thousands of Christians, as they claim to be the most persecuted religion of all. And last one to talk about is Julia Agrippa, Nero's mother, and Cal Caligula's sister, and Clydeus' wife, who Tacitus employed as a source for his writings. Now, she was killed by Nero in the year 59, so too early to report on the events of 64, but she was born in the year 15, with close position to Caligula and Claudius, making it reasonable that she would write something about Jesus or Christianity, if it was at all significant enough to talk about. Did not one of these authors living during the times of Jesus and the birth of the cults movement even notice, critique it, or was it or is everyone just wholly disinterested in it? Didn't care. Doesn't seem right based upon the accounts that we get, but who knows? A couple more people of interest that would have, had, would have said something would have been Vespasian and his son Titus, who were both published commentaries during their government service, including the Jewish War. These being the source material that Josephus used, of course. So if Christians ever significantly came up in their invasions and conquest of Judea or their government in Rome, one would think that they would have had mentioned it too. But we get nothing. We also know of Fabius Rusticus, who was a historian that wrote during Nero as well as the events up to Augustus. Tiberius, 
and Claudius, and definitely would have noticed Christianity, as well as a guy walking around with disciples, raising the dead, performing random miracles. It's also hard to believe that no pagan ever criticized Christianity, attacked it, or was even in favor of it. We get nothing. Then we have Seneca the Younger, who wrote on superstition between 40 and 62 CE that basically went around and lambasted every known cult in or near Rome. Even the most trivial or obscure, including the Jews, but never ever mentions anything about Jesus or Christians. In fact, St. Augustine struggled explaining these omissions away in his writings to the church. And it's also very interesting that Seneca, who was the brother of Gallio, who Christian writers are brought on trial before in Greece, at least according to Acts 18, 12 to 17. And of course, Seneca says nothing about that. Likewise, Josephus, who was the personal friend of the same Agrippa, before whom Christians went on trial according to Acts 25-26. And Josephus tells us nothing about Jesus or Christians that wasn't tampered with. There wasn't a 3rd or 4th century forgery. Nor was there any mention of what would have been countless volumes of published speeches coming from the 1st century. For example, we have, we have collected speeches of Maximus of Tyre, who supposedly was visited by Jesus, according to Mark 3.8, as well as 7.24-31. But outside of Mark, the visit never happened in reality. This is just one of thousands of orators in the first century that produced volumes of speeches, and not just in Tyre, but in every major metropolis. The topics were vast and covered every topic imaginable, from history to comedies and not one mention of Jesus and his crew. Additionally, at the same time, satire was huge and very popular. It was a popular genre. So Lucian, Lucian mocked and satirized several different religions in the late 2nd century, and there were many before him, but never found the occasion to mention Christians or the movement. Unless he did so, and it was eventually deleted. But in the first century, we still have fragments of the Satyricon of Petronius, who mocked all the religions and all of their narratives, even poking fun at crucifixions in general. But guess what? He never once ever mentions Jesus at all, or his assumed crucifixion. Wouldn't that be a great opportunity to talk about it? Satirize it? In fact, none of the early pagan religion novels mentions Christ at all. Christians, or Christianity in general, even though they would have crossed paths throughout the empire multiple times with other religious cults that were very active at the time. Of course, it could be claimed that there were indeed many such mentions, but none were preserved for some reason, and this is probably most definitely true in the case of Jewish and, Nero and uh, Neronian literature, but it's most definitely true for countless other people, fads, and events in the Roman Empire. But none of those groups had a massive church that was devoted to preserving records of its resurrected God. 
This is why we have hundreds of more time faith literature from Christians about Christianity than any other faith group during the first all the way to the fourth century. Because they had to create their history. Only Judaism comes in with a distant second place. That's only because Christians preserved a lot of Jewish literature. And Judaism is the only religious community to continuously survive the Roman Empire to present. Now we have to ask ourselves, did early Christians tamper with evidence? It certainly seems like they did. Because there are gaps in historical literature that we have that have simply gone missing. In the Roman history of Cassius Dio, all the years from 6 to 2 BCE, when Jesus supposedly was born, are simply gone. Even though there is evidence elsewhere that Dio discussed Herod's death in this period. A Christian would have expected Dio to discuss the slaughter of the innocents and the miraculous star and all the other amazing events surrounding the birth of Jesus, as Matthew and Luke told to us. The silence of Dio might have been just too embarrassing, as the same thing with the silence of Tacitus. This missing information might be no accident, as his works were quite thorough. There's something that's really odd and out of place here. The gap begins exactly two years before Herod's death, in accordance to Matthew 2.16, and then ending exactly two years after it, just for good measure. There's also something mysterious and shady about what Dio wrote about the year 30. In the middle of his volume 58, which covered the years 29 all the way to 37, he makes a reference to an event that was deleted around the year 15 and the year 30. It was probably a section also about the Judean affairs, Judean affairs, excuse me, whose silence about Jesus and Christianity might have been just too embarrassing to retain. Another strange but significant loss of time are also found in the volumes of Philo of Alexandria. Despite the fact that Christians saved numerous writings of Philo, the ones that would have mentioned Jesus or Judean affairs under Pontius Pilate are missing or probably destroyed is more like it. Christians were notorious book burners. According to Eusebius, Philo wrote five books about his embassy to Caligula after the year 36 and the events precipitating it, of only which two managed to survive. Now, what could have possibly have happened to the other three? All three of these covered times that would have embarrassingly, embarrassingly omitted any mention of Christians and Jesus and Rome, as such were claimed in the apocryphal but popular Acts of Pilate or in Jerusalem, or in Alexandria. But the most important volume would have been the one on Pilate's persecution of the Jews in Judea. Christians surely would expect that volume to mention Pilate's execution of Jesus in some respect, some shape or form. But unfortunately, it probably did not, because it didn't happen. Once again, just too embarrassing to allow to survive for critics to see. So we have to ask ourselves, what material was deleted and why? The context of the religion appears to be thwarted by an editor with something to hide. 
Not something to reveal, something to hide. Also, this must have been done by the Roman Empire, who read everything that was in circulation. Was it during Constantine or later when Christianity became the empire's official state religion? However, however we choose to deal with this, guys, with the strange silence of secular, pagan, or Jewish literature throughout the first and most of the second century, there are a few things that Christians chose to preserve, and that starts with their own literature. But among the literature available to us, among the datable literature, nothing from Christianity's entire first 60 years, except what later became canonized as the New Testament, and that must only represent a fraction of what actually existed. After all those decades, we got our first very long letter from Clement of Rome, who writes to the Church of Corinth, supposedly in 95 CE, and after the death of Peter and Paul than supposedly a collection of letters from Ignatius to various churches in what is now Turkey, dated around 110 CE, and then nothing else until after the year 120, almost a century after the religion began. It's hard to imagine how a church can thrive on three continents, mind you, for almost 100 years and produce almost no letters or literature. Of all the second century Christian writings that we know about, most helpful might have been the histories of the church written sometime between 120 and 180 by Papias and Hegesippus. Otherwise, we know of no other Christian writings, with the exception to Acts, until after the second century. But before we can proceed, we need to understand exactly what we don't have and what is missing. We should have hundreds of letters that were written in the first century, and possibly even dozens by Paul alone. Yet we only have seven that we can account for that were at least authentic. Now, however, based upon what we know about Christian editing, and what we do have of Paul's could very well have been just a cut-and-paste job. At least that's the way that they appear. And there's still a lot that's missing. When it comes to other first-century authors, we only have a handful at most. Yet, we should have numerous letters from apostles, as well as letters communicating between the churches, and from every decade, beginning with Paul. As to why we don't, there's no verifiable explanation, unfortunately. We can only presume that they were either tossed aside or destroyed like everything else that they didn't agree with. Right? We should also have church records that, or, or that would include Jesus' family record. Or perhaps his family dies out or simply wasn't important enough to preserve? However, one would think that the single most important person, man-god, to ever walk on the earth, they would have preserved his documentation about his family, where he lived. It is all well known that families at this time would receive census and tax receipts from the government documenting family relations, birth, property, place of residence, and, pa and taxes paid. They would have deeds from any property owned. It's simply hard to imagine that any of these documents 
would be of no interest to the church at all. And of course, we should talk about the creative editing, because we have to consider Josephus and the Testimonia Flaviana, because there are two passages in Josephus's Jewish Antiquities, originally published sometime around 93 CE. In the present text that we have, it does mention Jesus as a historical person. However, both are most certainly interpolations made by Christian scribes and editors in later centuries to try to fit Jesus into a historical setting, just like the gospel accounts did, and especially Acts. In fact, Josephus never mentions Jesus, Christ, or Christians, and he lived during that time period. But here's what the passage says, and begin quotation. And there was about this time... Jesus, a wise man, if really we must call him a man, for he was a doer of incredible deeds, a teacher of men who received truth gladly, and he won over many Jews, and also many of the Greeks. This man was the Christ. And when the accusations of the leading men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first loved him did not cease to. For he appeared to them on the third day, alive again. The divine prophets, having spoken these countless other marvels about him. And even until now, the tribe of the Christians, so named from this man, has not failed. Now here's the problem with this forgery. And before I go on, we have to talk about the obvious one. Josephus, from the beginning, already warns of the Jews, which came out 20 years before this book, outrightly claims Vespasian as the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. Josephus called Vespasian the Messiah. And this is, this is you know, we're talking about during 70, 66 to 70. This is actually 66 when he proclaimed this. In Cicera Philippe, so, this story is ridiculous. So, this entire paragraph, it would be absurd coming from the hand of a devout Jew, not to mention a sophisticated author and writer of far more elegant prose, and usually responsibly explains to his readers anything that's strange or odd or out of place, like this little section that's just cut and pasted in, not even eloquently. This passage is self-evidently a fawning and gullible Christian fabrication. In fact, demonstrably, the entire passage is derived from the Emmaus narrative in the Gospel of Luke 24, 13-35, where a post-resurrected Jesus is met on the road to Emmaus, where he had dinner with two disciples inserted into the text at a point where it doesn't make any sense at all in the particular narrative that he's talking about. Apart from being a survey of the crimes of Pontius Pilate, which he was talking about, because Pontius Pilate was a real dude that we talked about already in this episode, that contributed to the inciting of the Jews and the war. But there's no way that the narrative that, he, that, that Christian stuck in there shoehorned in, the Christians are not being connected with the war in any such way. And the Jewish elite, they're not outraged by an execution of Jesus, but in fact, they'd endorse it. 
Moreover, no other author had ever heard of this passage in the antiquities until Eusebius finds it in the fourth century. Not even Origen, who has quoted Josephus's works, including antiquities, throughout history, including text from this, from this. Surely he would have mentioned it somewhere. One would think that one of his contemporaries would have mentioned it as well, or even pagan or secular alike. But again, we get nothing. More and more scholars believe that it was Eusebius, actually, who forged the document, as he was also a self-proclaimed historian and loved, with jealousy, I might add, the works of Josephus. That's why Origen, or anyone else, never saw the passage before the 4th century. Now we have to talk about Pliny and Tacitus to review what they say about Jesus or Christianity. Obviously, Josephus, we have to completely rule out altogether as a work of Christian forgery. That leaves us with these two guys, who wrote before the year 120, and actually did seemingly mention Jesus, or at least Christ, Christians. Now, Pliny the Younger and Tacitus are authors that are particularly significant, because they were not only contemporaries, but they were best friends who frequently corresponded with each other and even exchanged information when writing their own histories and were governing adjacent provinces at the very time Pliny first discovered what Christians were and what they were preaching. And Pliny tells us that he had no idea what Christians were or believed until he interrogated some of them and discovered it was some sort of base superstition involving the worship of a certain Christ, Christ figure, who is something like a demigod. But he gives no other further details other than that, not even the name Jesus, and says nothing pertinent to establish historicity at all. Now, at best, we might be able to assume that Christians just simply repeated or regurgitated the Pliny material from their gospel, coming directly to them from the pulpit. Now, what we do know about Pliny is that his procedures sucked. As an investigator, right? Because he involved no independent fact-checking. And from his behavior and attitude, we can only conclude that he did the same thing here. And this goes for Tacitus, too. Now, Pliny, let's talk about this guy a little bit. He had been the governor of Bithynia now Turkey, for over a year. And at this point, before even learning about Christians in his province, and before that, he held the post of council, the highest possible office in the entire Roman Empire, short of actually being the emperor. He had also been a lawyer, a lawyer in Roman courts for decades, then served in Rome as the, uh, as the praetor, which is basically equivalent to the chief of police and the attorney general together as one and then served as Trajan's top legal advisor before being appointed to the governor of Bithynia. And yet, he tells us he had never attended a trial of Christians and knew nothing of what they believed in or what crimes they were guilty of. This confirms that his father, Pliny the Elder, never discussed Christians in his account of the Neronian fire, despite having been eyewitness to those events and devoting an, an entire volume of history to that year, although his account is mysteriously lost. 
So if he had, I'm guessing that his adopted son, Pliny the Younger, surely would have read it and would not have known nothing about Christians as reports in his letter to Trajan. We can safely assume that Tacitus would have been no better informed when he wrote that Nero scapegoated the Christians for burning down Roman 64. We also know that Tacitus asked Pliny for information to include in his book of history. So, the fact that Pliny discovered what Christians were preaching in 110, right when Tacitus was governing an adjoining province and writing his histories, and just a few years before Tacitus completed his annuals before 117, suggests that most likely the chain of information was Christians telling Pliny about the Gospels. Then in turn, Pliny telling Tacitus, and Tacitus then reporting these details in his annuals. Otherwise, it was a victim of Christian forgery, as we've seen everywhere else. The same thing goes for Suetonius as well as Thallus. So, in conclusion to this episode, we can only predict, we can only assume, that Paul is our first mentioning of Jesus, that he had to die for the sins of an evil generation, which is a term that Josephus also used, as well as wicked generation, the wicked generation of Jews that brought death and destruction onto themselves and the destruction of their holy temple. So, it's fair to say that between 60 and 70, this was a common term for the Jews who were trying to start a war with the Romans. Even by Jews who wanted peace, like Paul, referred to them as a wicked generation. Based on everything that we just talked about, I believe that Paul begins his ministry after 45, all the way through 60 at the latest. He's not mentioned anywhere by anyone doing anything. Josephus never even heard of him, like everyone else. Roman historians are only interested in the trouble-making Jews. We have nothing in Paul's authentic seven letters that would give us any hint at all that Peter, James, and John were disciples of Jesus for three years and that Jesus was set up by the Jews and then crucified by the Romans. We get nothing in the original works that we have. After Paul sometime between 60 and potentially 68, we do get one Peter that we discussed earlier that also gives us no details about how and where Jesus died, only that he had to suffer for our sins and that Gentiles should learn from his suffering. Right? Pretty odd considering everything that Paul says about Peter is that he didn't believe Gentiles could be Christian. And if they did, they would need to wear yarmulkes, change their eating habits, and get circumcised. Peter, one, comes from a Pauline sect of Christianity. Not actually Peter and James's, who come from a strict Torah-observant Christianity. So whoever wrote one Peter? No, 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 no. He was on the gentle-seeking crew. So we also possibly get Hebrews and one Clement that are both oddly silent about anything historical when it comes to Jesus, especially Hebrews. Everything about it looks like a celestial Christ that must die for a sinful generation. So this type of Christianity was seemingly the original view on Christ, only to be seen in vision by a select few, 
after suffering and dying in a celestial realm against Satan for the transgressions of the Jews and the corruption of their temple. This seems clear from the 30s all the way to 68 CE. Now, as to why did he do it? No one is really sure, but from what we can tell is that he did in fact adopt a version of Christianity that was already in motion. But for reasons unknown, he was obsessed with securing members, both Jewish and predominantly Gentile. This would build power for Paul, his influence over many in multiple continents, getting to share in the benefits of tithing, I'd imagine, which there is the strange affair where Paul made all the churches hand over their collections because he wanted to take them to the Jerusalem church. And he also complained that Christians weren't feeding him or putting him up for the night when he traveled, doing church work. So he appears to be kind of a moocher and possibly an embezzler. But I also think that Paul sought to unify the Jews with the Gentiles, as the view of the Jews was very, very low and war was very, very imminent. I think that he was trying to create some peace, a buffer between the two populations in hopes to detour war. So now when we come back, I want to continue on with the Gospels. We don't need to beat a dead horse or a dead Gospel of Mark. I think we've done that enough. But I'll, I'll kind of encapsulate all four together, talk about the other books that were in circulation, and then I want to finally get to the book of Revelation. But more importantly... What are these authors responding to? So this is more talking about the, the history that's going on, the situation, and then what the writing is, which is how we learn to date these books. This, my friends, has been a skeptical, ghost, heathen, production. Thank you for listening.